Hey, it's really good to be here. Um, it's interesting. I, I say that I, I probably have done, I don't know, 350 speeches without, without, without embellishing. I think I've probably done 350 speeches the last six years of my life. And you want to be gracious, and so you typically say, hey, it's really good to be with you. And the truth is, when you wake up in Portland after flying seven hours at six in the morning, you're really not even sure what city you're in, and you, you got to really think about who you're going to speak to, you get to the audience and you say, hey, it's really good to be here, but most of the times that's really kind of a lie. <laughs> you're tired, you're, you're worn out, you've been living out of a suitcase, and it's just really great to get it over with, frankly. Um, but today, it's really great to be here. I, I was telling Mike earlier, um, actually looked at it, I have, I have spoken to 21 churches in the last five years, nine of which are in the city, but never my own. And I am, uh, I feel like I'm home. Um, you know, just even just driving here this morning, it was almost nostalgic for me. Um, I, uh, I grew up in this city and I grew up in this church and my wife and my children and I were baptized in this church and I was married in this church and my grandparents died in this church. And to be able to spend 30 minutes sharing some thoughts with you all today is truly a humbling experience for me. So with all sincerity, it's really great to be here and good morning. Um, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to share with you some thoughts about shrimp and turkeys. Um, a guy that looks like me typically talks about food, so I thought it was appropriate that we talk about shrimp and turkeys, because I like to eat, as you can tell. Um, before I get to shrimp and turkeys, for those of you who don't know me, I would like to give you some perspective, a little house cleaning items. So, First, uh, my wife is Lisa. We've been married 26 years. My children, Maggie, Molly, Will, and Max, are 22, 21, 20, and 19. They are 22, 21, <laughs> 20, and 19. Some years ago, we moved from the county and got on city water, and it cleared up. But it was tough for a while. <laughs> my wife, Lisa, is drop-dead gorgeous. Now, I probably in a Bible study shouldn't say that, and it does maybe come off a little like a, a bragging thing, but when you are fat and you are redheaded and you have a hot wife, you tell everybody you can. <laughs> My wife's gorgeous. It's not an opinion, it's a matter of fact, and I, um, I, I will try to tell anybody that will listen about that. The second thing is, as evidenced by my 26-year-long marriage, I am scared to death of Lisa, uh, and therefore I do everything she says. And those of you who have been married as long as I have or longer um, probably share in some of that fear of your spouse. Um, the third thing is, when she married me, I was a 22-year-old football coach. I was making $17,500 a year, I was at the second smallest school in the state of Tennessee. Nobody knew what I was doing and nobody had heard of me and that was just fine with her. 
and she married this high school teacher and football coach. Um, since then, my life has been an incredible twist of, of turns and blessings. And, you know, I, I, have, I have a business with 150 employees. I, uh, I have an Academy Award, which is ridiculous. I have a New York Times bestseller. I've been on the Ellen DeGeneres show. I've been on Fox and Friends. I've got a TV show. I travel the world. And I tell you all this not to brag. I tell you this because I want you to know one more thing about Lisa is that she is wholly unimpressed by me. <laughs> I'm scared of her. She's beautiful. And she's very unimpressed by me. She married a high school coach and a football, a football coach and a high school teacher from Memphis. And, um, and married a guy she wanted to be a father to her children. And that was it. And that's all she ever cared about. And that's all she ever remains caring about. So, for those of you who've watched the Academy Awards on TV before, come on, work with me. I know it's early. Please tell me. All right, good. So, the TV will make things, I know this will shock you, but the TV will make things seem like they are something they're not. First thing you need to know about the Academy Awards is 95% of the people in the Academy Awards don't walk the red carpet. They go in a normal door like any old theater. Only the A-listers, only the top of the top actually walk the red carpet. And when Lisa and I entered, we took a red, wrong turn and ended up on the red carpet. So we're on the red carpet and I'm with my guy, P. Diddy, I don't understand how that happened, but I swear that's who I'm with. And we're going down the red carpet. The other thing is, if you watch the pre-Academy shows on TV, it looks like the press is out and amongst the, the stars interviewing them. Well, that's not at all how it is. The red carpet is actually very, very narrow, and it's about a football field long, and there's five foot by five foot cubicles arranged along the edge of it, and so if the camera's here and the interviewer's here, they can kind of lean out over the cubicle, have a conversation with the people as they pass by on the red carpet, and then they move on, and that's kind of how they get all those interviews as they kind of march down the red carpet toward the theater. And I just finished an interview with Ryan Seacrest, and when I backed out to kind of keep on down the red carpet, I stepped on, I kind of backed into somebody's foot, because again, it's tight. And if, if all of this, us gathered in an eight foot wide area and started walking and backing around, you know, you might step on somebody's toe, and when you do, you might little roll your ankle and you feel it. And I did, and so I turned around to apologize, because you know, we're Southern, we're from Memphis, we're, we're nice people, and I turned around to apologize, and when I turned around, I was, it was, that guy from ER, he's done some, George Clooney, it was George Clooney. And I stepped on old George Clooney's foot and I, I was like, and I, my thought is, I don't even know what I'm doing here. I'm just a regular guy from Memphis. I don't even know how I got to the red carpet. I took a wrong turn and shouldn't even be out here. And I like stepped on the man's toe and I wanted to apologize. And so I, I would kind of stutter and I was like, Mr. Clooney, and before I could get anything out, he goes, Coach Bill. And I was like, yeah, and he hugs me. George Clooney hugged me. And so I'm sitting there on the red carpet. Now, let me tell you something. The people in LA who really deserve the awards 
are the hair and makeup folks. Because the people you see on the screen and in the magazines that you think are all pretty and gorgeous and everything else, Lisa and I have been out there a lot now. We share dinner with these folks and lunch. And let me tell you something, most of them ain't much to look at. But George Clooney is fine. George Clooney's a good-looking dude, y'all. I mean, straight up, I'm very secure in that. He, he's, he's extraordinarily attractive, but, but he ain't a, he, like, about like this. Cute George, really, what he is. So anyway, old George turns around and starts hugging on me, and I'm from Memphis, and I think, well, that's what we do. We hug back, and I'm never going to hug George again. So I do, I dig in. I'm like, ooh, George, what's up? I'm, I can hear him going, ooh, just, you know, I'm digging in. It's George Clooney. If he was hugging you, you might as well give him some back, right? That's what I was doing. So here he was, but he ain't he about like this tall. So I could, while I was hugging him, I could see over his shoulder, and there was Lisa right behind him, wearing that beautiful gown. Mednikau, y'all, gave her like $700,000 with her jewelry to borrow to wear. That's, it, it was, she, she looked as beautiful as she is, she was unbelievable. People were actually asking, who's that actress? I'm not kidding. But there she was, and here I am. And I think, oh, baby, you look good, and I love you. And I'm scared of you, and I do what you say. And I know you ain't been impressed, but looky here where I got balled up on the red carpet. So I give her one of these. Y'all, yeah. <laughs> her mouth looked like the end of an uncooked hot dog. It was. That night we went on and won the Academy Award, which is ridiculous. And uh, the next morning, late morning, we woke up after all the parties and I looked over at her and said, can you believe this, baby? Can you believe this? We're in Hollywood hanging out with George Clooney and Kevin Costner and all these people, and we just won an Academy Award. I cannot believe this. Can you believe it? She's like, no, I can't believe it. I said, but I got a question. Last night, before the awards, when we were on the red carpet and I was out there with old George, you were not happy with me. You gave me the pierced lip look. And she said, no. She said, no. I said, why not? She goes, do you understand our children are in our friend's living room while they're taking care of us watching this on TV? Do you understand every press outlet and media outlet in the world are covering this? You're on TV, you're on the radio, you're in print, and you're out there on the red carpet hugging on George Clooney like he's your best friend. Don't you know somebody whispered in his ear who you are? He doesn't know you. He doesn't care nothing about you. If he saw you today, he would cross the street to avoid you. And you're out there in front of media and everybody acting like you're... If this whole experience makes you think something you're not, if this whole experience changes you, if you're going to use this whole experience, if you're going to use this blessing to act like you're something you're not and you're going to forget where you came from, I don't want to be any part of it. Said so you, you can take me back to Memphis right now and do whatever you think you want to do, big shot. The fifth thing... I want to tell you about my wife. She's beautiful, and I am scared of her, and I do what she says, and she is not impressed, 
But most importantly, she's my compass. She points me in the right direction when I tend to want to get outside the curbs. And I, and I think it's important, certainly, that our faith and our relationship with Christ is our primary compass. But I also think it's of, of, of huge import that we surround ourselves with people who are willing to be our compass, who are willing to be our compass. And it may be a spouse, it may be a best friend, but it seems as though the more God blesses us with, the more opportunity he gives us to go the wrong way. And I look at my wife and I see a beautiful woman, but I see my compass who keeps me between the curbs. I, I wanna share with you with regard to that something I read only a few days ago Proverbs 13:20 He who walks with the wise grows wise but a companion of fools suffers harm We got to make sure we surround ourselves with compasses with companions that keep us going in the right direction that that morning Lisa said look if this is going to lead to all the stuff the agents are saying, which is a book and speeches all over the country and TV shows and, and all that it's going to lead to, I'll stand beside you. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget what your foundation is. And no matter what you do, wherever you go, keep it real. Just keep it real. Don't say in certain, in certain venues what people want to hear and then in other venues what People want to hear, just keep it real. With regard to that, Proverbs 27, 5, open criticism is better than hidden love. So Lisa and I have used these two Proverbs with regard to this experience, which is don't think you're something you're not, have a compass, stay focused on your direction, and in doing so, just keep it real. I recently was in DC, and in the morning I spoke to the Heritage Foundation, and in the evening I spoke to the Huffington Post Correspondence Dinner. Could not be two more polar opposite groups of people. And we said the exact same thing to both. And that's because I have a compass, and because we keep it real. So with that in mind, and in honor of what my responsibilities are, I want to keep it real with you today on just two quick points. I think shrimp and turkeys have a lot to teach us. Um, first, Lisa, I was, I was coming back from the coast not too long ago, and Lisa said, hey, stop down by the docks and get some fresh, go buy a cooler, Stop by the docks, get some fresh shrimp, bring it up here. I want to have a shrimp bowl tomorrow, and I want it to be fresh. I don't want to buy the frozen Vietnamese shrimp that Kroger carries. I want it out of the Gulf and, and fresh. And because I do what Lisa tells me, I diverted down to the docks to get the shrimp. Anybody ever gone and got fresh fish or fresh shrimp off the docks down in the Gulf? Help me. Good. So when you get down there, you park and you roll up there waiting for the boats to come in with that fresh fish and you're immediately greeted with a smell, a stench. If you've been there, you know it. 
There's nothing like it. It's I don't know if it's fish guts or fish blood or I don't know or I don't know what it is, but the docks stink. But it's kind of worth it because you're gonna get that fresh fish. And I I was sitting down there at the docks, kind of kind of giving it this, holding my nose a little bit, waiting for the boats to come in, thinking about the stench that Lisa's making me suffer through because she wants fresh shrimp, but I'm doing it because I'm doing what I'm told to do, and, and the boats come rolling in. Here come the shrimp boats. And then when the shrimp boats show up and you get the shrimp, I found out the one more, I found the one thing more putrid than the stench of the docks. The fishermen, they're rough. Deodorant is more of a suggestion than a reality. Uh, a toothbrush is not really part of the deal. They wake up before the sun goes up, and they jump on the boats, and they're out there in the mist of the, of the gulf and got the sulfur and the sweat, and they smoke two packs of Marlboro Reds and the 13 hours on the water. The sun's coming down. It's this beautiful scene, and the docks stink, and here comes these Really, honestly, just disgusting people just, they, but they got those fresh shrimp. So I got the fresh shrimp. I put them in my cooler that I'd bought at Walmart on the way there after Lisa told me to get them, and I headed home, leaving the stench behind me happily. And it was about Jackson that it dawned on me. That's exactly who Christ surrounded himself with. Stinky, gross disenfranchised fishermen and tax collectors and women of ill repute. Shrimp taught me that. Shrimp reminded me of this. Mark 2.17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have come to call the, I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Y'all, I grew up in this building as I shared with you earlier. I remember when this was the gymnasium. Right here was the gymnastics thing. This was the bas opposite ends of the basketball floor. Um, I was downstairs in this building when it caught fire one Sunday morning and we all had to be scurried out into the street. I love this building. I love this property. I love this place. And there's nothing wrong with any of it. And it sits at the corner of Poplar and Goodlett, surrounded by million-dollar homes. What a blessing. What a phenomenal blessing our church is, our building is. What a phenomenal blessing this group is. But I will tell you, I think Christ has illustrated something to us. If today was the day that he showed up, he wouldn't come here. This would not be his stop. It'd be at the docks. It'd be with the stinky fishermen and the people of ill repute that don't live in homes or exist in buildings like the one we're in today. And I'm not this is not a guilt trip. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this place. I'm just saying if this is where we spend all our time, we're missing the boat. Christ gave us an example. And if we're in a small group and we go to Amen Bible study 
and we go to church every Sunday, and we go home, and this is our existence, um, I, th- I, th- I think we're existing uh, as a little bit over-righteous. I, I want to tell you some demographics. Of the families with children under five years old, 83.4% live below the poverty level. 87% of homes are valued at less than $50,000, and only 23% of people actually own their home. More than 75% of of residents rent, and half of those renters pay less than $300 a month. More than 50% of adults do not have a vehicle, Only 43% of adults are high school graduates or GED equivalents. Only 1.3% have a bachelor's degree. Unemployment rate is roughly 36%. Roughly 50% of the community is under the age of 25. Only 12.5% of households consist of a married couple. 21.5% of homes list the grandparent as being responsible for the children. And an 18-year-old male is three times more likely to be incarcerated than he is to be in college or have a job by the time he turns 21. Gentlemen, I just got back from Uzbekistan. It's in the middle of Central Asia. It is one of of the most third-world countries I've ever been, and I, I travel a lot for business. I've, I've, I've been to the Middle East, I've been all over Eastern Europe, and I've seen despair and I've seen poverty. The demographics I just gave you, though, are 11 miles from here. 11 miles from where we sit. I, I will tell you, serving the needy Serving the poor, raising up the most disenfranchised in our community, it's not a nice thing to do. It's a requirement of a Christian. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ wouldn't show up here today not because we're bad, not because we're doing anything wrong, but because he goes to the sickest of the sick and we sit here surrounded by him. And I just, it's not a guilt trip, it's a calling. Think of all the blessings that sit just in this room. Think of the value of the clothing on your back and the building you sit in and the cars in the parking lot and the businesses and homes that you will leave here and go to. And think of, think of the amazing bounty that the Lord has given us. While only 11 miles from here sit people that live in a third world country. It's not a good thing to do. It's a requirement. And it's also an illustration given to us. I mean, there's so much in the Bible that to me, you kind of got to think yourself through and you got to learn to believe. With regard to what I'm talking about, Christ gave us an example. 
because it's how he lived when he was here. He was with the fishermen and the women of ill repute. He was with the tax collectors that were considered thieves. He surrounded himself with the unrighteous and the unholy and the sinners. And if you've been at church, you've been hearing, God loves sinners. I believe God weeps and loves the people from the demographics that are 11 miles from here right now. And I believe with the bounty we've been given and the example Christ gave us, we're required to dive in. We can do more. So, secondly, with regard to turkeys, um, I was at Manassas my first year, and halfway through the season, we were three and three. Now, y'all, I think three and three is kind of average, but when I got to Manassas, there were 17 kids on a high school football team, and they'd won four games in 10 years. That's 496. They were awful. They were terrible. I mean, there were plenty of athletic kids, but they didn't know anything about football. They didn't know how to get into three points. I mean, they just really didn't know anything. And so we went to work coaching. And halfway through the season, we were three and three. And again, I think that's average, but against four wins in 10 years, that wasn't bad. So the guys were buying in. They were yes or no sir on the football field. They were having some success for the first time in their life. They were excited about it. Well, one of the other things that they didn't know much about besides football was life. The importance of, of being on time, character, commitment, um, selflessness, being willing to do something for the guy next to you. Um, basic fundamentals and tenets were just lost, weren't didn't exist in many of these kids' ethos. And so we started coaching that too. We were coaching football. We were coaching stuff that my grandmother taught me. Halfway through the season, we're three and three. And while the whole team had bought into football, only half the team, only half the team had bought into the important stuff. They were yes or no sir on the football field, but the minute football was over, they were back in the neighborhoods doing the same destructive behavior. And it was driving me crazy. So I went to my guy. Every coach has a guy. I went to Jamie Bobo. I said, Bo, what do I got to do to get this half the team to buy in like your half the team to the important stuff? All the football's good, but I'm talking about the important stuff. Now, Bobo is the guy that I had a ton of conversations with early. First one that kind of opened up to me and I opened up too. He helped me understand his reality and a lot about his culture in North Memphis and and all of the struggles and everything that, that they were up against. And, and I told them about how I grew up and where I came from. And we had real conversations. So I just knew Bo would help me to understand why I couldn't get half the team to buy the important stuff. And I asked him, I said, Bo, what do I got to do? And he said, Coach, just keep doing what you're doing. Dismissively. You know, if you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm like, no, Bo. Straight talk. And he said, Coach, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I said, Bo, you're not going to hurt my feelings. He said, all right, Coach. You really want to know what their problem is? I said, yeah. Why won't they buy into the important stuff? And he said, Coach, you're trying to figure out if you're a turkey person or not. Guys, I got to tell you, my first 
seven weeks at Manassas, I learned a lot of vernacular that I'd not heard in my life before. But Turkey person wasn't one of them. I said, Bo, what are you talking about? And he said, Coach, every Thanksgiving and Christmas, people roll into our neighborhoods from where you live, and they drop off gifts and hams and turkeys, and we take them because we ain't got none. But then they leave, and we never see them again. Makes you wonder if they're doing that because they really care about us or they're doing that to make themselves feel good. And he looked me dead in the eyes. He said, what are you doing here, coach? I might ask you the same thing. What are you doing here? What are we doing here? As in at second, as in at our church, as in East Memphis in the suburbs, as in on earth. What are we doing here? What an opportunity we have every day. What are we doing here? Are we doing enough? You see, I got to tell you something. When Bobo said that to me, I was hot. I was, I was going to work at 6 in the morning, working until 2.30. I just started my business. Then I would leave at 2.30, get to work, at, get to school at 2.45, open the locker room, get the kids suited up, and on the field and practice is over at 5.30. But the deal was I can't coach these kids and not coach my own, and my own two boys are playing Little League football, which practice started at 6.30 in Germantown. So then I'd drive out there. Also, the team didn't have adequate helmets and uniforms, so we brought them all new stuff. During the fall, it's kind of cold riding up and down the streets on, on yellow school buses without heat. So we started taking charter buses. So new uniforms, new helmets, charter buses. My own Sunday school class was raising money to, for, for pregame meals, ACT prep classes. All my time, I brought in three assistant coaches that were friends of mine that were also volunteers and were there every day, no matter what, rain or shine, coaching and giving to them all this stuff that matters and they look at me and say what are you doing here they look at me and say you're a turkey person and I'm gonna tell you something that that made me hot and I acquiesced to a very obvious conclusion you can't help these people you can't help these folks you keep giving and giving and giving, and they just keep taking and taking and taking. You can't help these folks. Be honest. You ever thought that? Be honest. You don't have to nod your head at me, but you and you, I bet you have. Because you can't help these folks. They're beyond helping. It's not what Christ thought. But it's a very human reaction. So I would leave Manassas, and I would go to my kids' practice, and I'd still have on my Manassas gear, right? My, my Manassas shirt and shorts and all that. And it was, it was I, I just didn't have time to change. So I'd end up in Germantown coaching Germantown Youth League with my Manassas. The truth is I was on 240 one time and tried to change, like, on the way out there. And I had my shirt off one time, and an old blue-haired lady pulled up next to me, saw me with my shirt off, almost drove in the ditch. It was so disturbing. So it was more of a safety issue, so I just didn't change. So anyway, I met, and people walking up and going, Bill, what's this Manassas stuff? 
I'm like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm down there coaching at Manassas. They're like, that's awesome. Three we- this is not for purposes of an anecdotal story. Every bit of this is exactly right. Three weeks after I heard the turkey person story from Bobo, I'm still frustrated. I'm still angry. The commercial appeal, front page, not sports page, front page, headline, Manassas Miracle. Me. Here I am. People walking up, Bill, that's amazing. What else? I said, oh, well, I'm getting them ACT prep classes. We're going to try to get them in college. Bill, that is great. What else? Oh, well, we... We're getting, them, we're getting them to act right. Y'all, if you don't know what the term is, the wearing the pants down around here, you know, that's called sagging. I think it's the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. Nobody wants to see anybody's butt crack. Can you say that in a Bible study? <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. Show your mind, not your behind. Pull your drawers up. So we got them quit sagging. What else, Bill? Man, I got them doing their homework. What else? I got them being respectful teachers. What else? I got them doing that. I would be asked about Manassas constantly, and anytime anybody asked, I would be happy to tell them everything I was doing. Happy to. Backpacks. You're a good man, Bill. Yeah. Kind of raising up in society in terms of what people thought about me. Felt good. Paper, newspaper, y'all, this is year one. The movie was in year seven. Nobody even knew I was down there. People back, hey, what's going on? What's happening? I mean, made me feel good. I'm doing something good. The truth is, I could go home after practice and sleep with my doors unlocked, with my keys in the car, my windows up for a nice breeze where I lived. Me and the kids I coached slept in tubs, if they knew where they were going. Does anybody know why a child would sleep in a tub? I'll tell you, because they live in the hood, and the houses are old, and the tubs are cast iron, and if there's a drive-by, their body won't be riddled by bullets while they're in a tub. It's the safest place to sleep. That's 11 miles from you, gentlemen. You're surrounded by it here at Poplar and Goodlett. There was a rule I had, which is you could only wear blue and gold. Those are only colors you're able to sport. Manassas, blue and gold colors. And what that means is you can't wear blood or crip or grapevine colors. You can't wear blue or red or purple bandanas. You can't, how can I put together a football team that's willing to, willing to hit people for one another and play for one another, and the minute football's over, they're out there banging each other. We can't have that. The only colors you're going to wear are blue and gold. I had kids that showed up to practice that first year with bruises all over their face, knuckle bumps on their foreheads, black eyes, busted lips. And I finally asked somebody, why is everybody, what's this about? They said, coach, they can only wear blue and gold. And I'm like, okay. They said, well, coach, they had to get out of their game. Okay. Well, one particular game, the Seven Street Crips are especially violent, and the only way you can get out and they'll leave you alone is if you can take a two-minute butt-whooping from three people. I had kids defenselessly allowing themselves to be beat on for two days by three guys to adhere to my rules so they could be part of one positive thing. 
that's, that's fine, but the point is, I had kids being called sellouts. Man, that white coach ain't got nothing for you. You know you can't trust that guy. Uncle Tom's, chumps, what are you doing homework for, man? Homework ain't nothing. Get out here in the street with us. I had kids changing their ethos. I had kids turning their back on their families and their friends. I had kids being beaten. I had kids doing all kind of things completely against everything they knew and learned from their neighborhood to be part of one positive thing. And anytime anybody asked me about it, I was happy to tell them what I was doing. Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father will see what is done in secret and will reward you. A turkey person is a fraud. And I say it with conviction because I was one. It is not just good enough to have a compass. It is not just good enough to surround yourself with Christian people to keep you between the curbs and keep you going. It's also not just good enough to understand that Christ loved the stinky people and to take his lead and his illustration and go do things for the disadvantaged. That's not enough either. You also have to do it for the right reasons. You have to do it simply for the edification of another human being who has not received the riches you've received and for the glory of God. If you serve soup in a soup kitchen or if you serve Thanksgiving meals to the needy on Thanksgiving or drop off gifts on Christmas for those in need in this city. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. That's a beautiful thing. Do not misunderstand what Jamie Bobo was telling me. It's appreciated. But if you do it because you really secretly, between you and you, get self-gratification out of it because you can feel good about the nice thing you're doing for the poor folks, then your motive is wrong. You're a turkey person, and you're a fraud. And let me tell you the real secret is the very people you think you're serving will take what you have to offer, but the minute you turn and leave, they're staring daggers right through your back because they know what you are. Your friends may not, but they do. And so does Christ. And again, I know this 
not because I'm trying to put a guilt trip on anybody, but because I'm sharing with you what I was. I had it all backwards. We went on and went four and six my first year, which is pretty average, and it's a direct correlation to my ability as a coach and a leader because I'd, I'd not won my whole team. See, I believe players win games and coaches win players. Likewise, employees win contracts, employees win profits, and managers win the employees. And the greatest organizations are led by people who give credit to the followers when things go well and take blame when things go wrong. And we were four and six, which was better, but it was nowhere near our potential. My last two years at Manassas, we went 18 and two. And we went from 17 players to 70 players. And in a place where an 18-year-old male is three times more likely to be incarcerated than in jail, we graduated 18 kids and 17 went to college. And I'm going to tell you why. Because God had favor on us. And the reason God had favor on us is because we as the leaders, we as the people who were down there able to give, quit talking about ourselves. We gave credit to those kids righteously for all that they were willing to go through just to try to find a positive thing in their life. A turkey person's a fraud. Your motives matter. And don't think you're fooling anybody. Most of all, Christ. Albert Pike was an 18th century Freemason, and he said this. Many of you have heard it before. What you do for yourself in this life dies with you. What you do for another lives forever and remains immortal. To me, that's what legacy is. We, we sit in a building where on a wall is a handwritten letter from Abraham Lincoln. This church has mattered in this community for decades, more than a century, as has others in this community. And I, and I have a dream of this Christian army of men descending on the people 11 miles from us and what it could mean for our community. That is a legacy. That means so much more than the letter on the wall and the building here at Poplar and Goodlett. That is what God, I believe, has favor on. And that is what Christ illustrated to us. And I believe as Christian men, with the bounding of blessings, not as just to do nicely, but has a responsibility to do. To give of ourselves, to surround ourselves with the stinky fishermen and the sick, and to do it for their edification. And can you imagine what kind of legacy that would leave?